you are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the New York Times Book Review. My name is Nora Ami. The Laughter by Sonora Ja. The campus novel is a well-worn genre. We've already read about the hapless white men in their early middle age navigating the politics of uptight English departments and falling hopelessly in love with bewitching undergraduates. Each of these academics has his arcane specialization, and each laments the rising tide of social consciousness among his students. Will the forces of cultural relativism not stop until every university, every haven of logical thought and rational inquiry is burned completely to the ground? Unfortunately for the men in Sonora Jaw's new novel, The Laughter, the answer may very well be yes. The novel is narrated by Oliver Harding, scholar of the Christian apologist G.K. Chesterton and divorced philanderer. He'll be familiar to readers. He is an aging English professor obsessed with a beautiful younger woman. The woman is Ruhaba Khan, a Pakistani law professor whose voice comes to us only in her emails, an intriguing elision not unlike the titular characters from Lolita. Ruhaba is curious, vivacious, and compassionate, the kind of woman who Oliver feels can give him the joy he lacks, and whose imperfections he overlooks in service of his lust. Why, in our era of increased consciousness around issues of race, xenophobia, and misogyny, do we need another book from the point of view of a sex-obsessed straight white man? Because the laughter is not just any book from such a perspective. It's a no-holds-barred comic achievement that lambasts the power structures, keeping men like Oliver skulking the halls of academia. Ja's novel is set in the days before the 2016 election, a fitting choice for a story about resisting the racial and sexual politics of those in power. Oliver is happy to teach his Chesterton classes and clumsily flirt with Ruhaba until his world is thrown askew by a student protest demanding the decolonization of the curriculum and the hiring of more professors from marginalized backgrounds. Across America, young people want to take down all that is good and wise and learned. They want to topple statues, Oliver gripes. Ja seems to be making savvy reference to the contemporary conversations about the removal of Confederate statues in the United States, as well as the idea that many of the people and values we have enshrined as a country are worth toppling. Oliver quietly scoffs at the students' activism until he learns that Ruhaba has joined their protest. Hoping for a chance to successfully seduce her, Oliver decides to play both sides hosting a peacemaking faculty and students Halloween party while maintaining his skepticism that the students' efforts will amount to anything. In the mix is another plotline featuring Ruhaba's nephew, Adil, whose parents have sent him from France to live with Ruhaba after his involvement with a youth group speaking out against the mistreatment of French Muslim women in hijabs. The French government suspects the group of domestic terrorism, and Oliver harbors the same fear. 
Nevertheless, he steps into an avuncular role with a deal. Ja renders Oliver's bumbling narcissism with impressive skill, clearly writing across experience. She captures the clueless voice of a supremely privileged man to intense comic effect. As Oliver worms his way deeper into Rahaba's and Adil's lives, and the student's protest reaches a peak, Ja builds hair-raising suspense by dialing up the tension on some of the novel's most fraught dynamics. The students with the professors, the professors with one another, Oliver's with Ruhaba. Every scene is infused with the anxieties of a democracy on the brink of collapse and an education system facing a crisis of conscience. To say the laughter is just a campus novel is to vastly undersell it. It's also the story of America's changing cultural landscape and the major political and philosophical shifts needed to uplift and protect the marginalized. This is a smart and hilarious book, not just for anyone who wants to laugh at the absurdity of academia, but for anyone who wants to become a better person by doing it. This review was written by Raphael Frumpkin, who is the author of The Come Down and a professor of creative writing at Southern Illinois University. His second novel, Confidence, is forthcoming. The Unfortunates by J.K. Chukwu. In J.K. Chukwu's debut novel, The Unfortunates, black students are disappearing from a predominantly white university. To be exact, we lost four of the seven black students who lived in my dorm, explains Sahara Kasandu Nwadaiki, a queer, half-Nigerian, half-black student who struggles with depression. Two transferred, one dropped out, and the last, Alicia, joined the unfortunates, or in other words, died by suicide. This incident, along with every other experience we learn from Sahara's thesis, forms the backbone of this book. Thanks to Sahara's creative eye and clever wit, her work resists ceremonious academic airs. In an opening letter to the thesis committee, she thanks her advisors, Mr. White Supremacy, Mr. Capitalism, Ms. Racism, and, of course, my life partner for all the guidance they have provided during this process. As she recounts her struggle to stay afloat during the fall semester of her sophomore year, Sahara incorporates various forms of media into her project. There are witty diagrams, skits she's written herself into, and pages from a zine created by her Aunt Nita, who died from AIDS-related complications the year Sahara was born. Copious footnotes, ranging from one-line explanations to detailed paragraphs, signal to readers what's important to her. So does Sahara's decision to include some names in her thesis while changing or redacting others. We never learn the name of her university. But this thesis is not just a kind of Dear John letter to the world of white academia. It's a farewell letter, too. Only to you, my readers, will I admit that during the pauses of my games, a growing part of me is preparing to leave like her, Sahara writes, referring to Alicia. We learn that her depression is her life partner. Sahara works to keep LP happy by giving her everything she desires, namely lots of alcohol. She'll need her anything and my everything just to keep her occupied long enough, Sahara writes. 
the question of if and sometimes when Sahara will decide to skip into traffic, a lake or out an open window of a high enough building, heavily colors her perception of the world. The deeper she pulls readers into her plans to take her own life, the closer the precipice feels. Increasing the pressure are racist and classist microaggressions. A black student coalition celebration takes place in a building named for a eugenicist. A white classmate downplays the Tuskegee experiment, claiming that the black patients would have eventually died anyway as a result of their socioeconomic standing. Unfortunately, Sahara's home isn't much of a refuge. Her family struggles with her bisexuality, her weight gain. Sahara is so open that her words feel like a diary. Yet even in this presumed safe space, she's still mindful of being too honest. Hopefully, when some college student is writing a thesis about this thesis years from now, I will seem a little well-rounded and not too much of an angry black girl, she admits, speaking to the pressure black people often feel to stifle their feelings in predominantly white spaces. But this consciousness also speaks to the stigma surrounding the discussion of mental illness in black spaces, too. During the aforementioned BSC celebration, the second-best hair braider on campus remarks that she only sees everyone at coalition events or when they need to get their hair done. When no one responds, HB2, as Sahara calls her, digs deeper. Seriously, you guys, where are y'all at? I feel like I'm always alone here. Sahara writes, I look down at my plate. We all have a reason for not being around, some more than others. Survival, I think. Someone articulates my thought. I'm afraid to look up. I'm worried people will see LP and her sadness leaking from my head. Sarah lightens the mood with a joke, telling her readers the jokes become more desperate, insistent on drowning out the silence. With laughter, we can remain together. But moments of mirth are outweighed by the despair Sahara hides from everyone in her life, even those who seem like lifelines. She doesn't confide in her ride or die, her easygoing best friend since freshman year. Nor does she open up to Mariah, a compassionate senior who comes close to peeling back Sahara's layers. I'd rather be seen as empty than exposed as the suicidal founder, architect, and sole student of this schoolgirl crush, Sahara writes. It's a poignant reminder of how tight a hold mental illness can have. While her inner life can be stormy, there are glimmers of catharsis, too, especially in the bond she feels with her late aunt, who shared her artistic spirit. She sees a therapist, starts taking medication, and tells her teachers why she's been absent. While attending Ride or Die's art show, she wanders through the gallery and remarks upon feeling not just pain and stagnation, but joy and progress, too. Nevertheless, Sahara doesn't promise everything will always be okay. Of course it won't be. In the final skit in her thesis, Sahara imagines renewing her vows with life partner in front of her therapist. LP snarls at Sahara while Sahara nonchalantly removes LP's tuxedo. I'm never leaving, LP threatens. Sahara doesn't argue. Instead, she touches LP, caressing every jagged piece of flesh. Calmly, she replies, I know. This review was written by Zakia Dahlia Harris, who is the author of The Other Black Girl. Trust the Plan, 
The Rise of QAnon and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America by Will Sommer. It all started, in a way, with Hunter S. Thompson in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, his gonzo psychedelic classic, Thompson described ingesting a rare and illicit drug called adrenochrome. You could obtain it only from the adrenal glands of a living human body. That stuff makes pure mescaline seem like ginger beer, Thompson's lawyer tells him. You'll go completely crazy if you take too much. The lawyer had gotten it from a hobby Satanist and possible child molester. The freaky details matter. The scene is brilliant. On Adrenochrome, Thompson feels he's wired into a 220-volt socket. And like so many scenes in HST's anarchic corpus, it's fiction. Adrenochrome does exist. It's a byproduct of adrenaline, but it's not a recreational drug. You don't harvest it from living people. It has no current medical use, and its effects are said to be negligible. It's more sarsaparilla than smack. Flash forward to 2017, early in the Trump presidency. From the wastewaters of the Internet, cryptic comments flowed up from an anonymous figure known only as Q. He's thought by the credulous to have a high-level security clearance. His words are taken seriously, as if delivered by diplomatic pouch. Q keeps typing, albeit rarely. He, nearly everyone agrees that Q is male, thinks Hillary Clinton will be arrested. Secret military operations will commence, and so on. Q's ideas are picked up, augmented, remixed, and amplified on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And before long, the following has a name, QAnon, and people with Q flags are turning up at Trump rallies. The going gets weird, to paraphrase Thompson, and adrenochrome turns pro. It's a core QAnon belief, feeble but sprawling, like an L, the Ron Hubbard novel that elites from the Democratic Party, Hollywood, and big finance are keeping thousands of children in underground tunnels where they are tortured by pedophiles who harvest adrenochrome from their blood because it's an elixir that wards off aging. It's Beelzebubian Botox. When you believe that, and millions do, there's merch, dietary supplements, and get-rich-quick schemes that may also interest you. In his short, punchy, and well-reported book, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and The Conspiracy that Unhinged America, Will Sommer traces the rise of this obsession, and others like it, finding them to be direct echoes of blood libel the anti-Semitic myth pervasive in the Middle Ages that Jews murdered Christian boys to use their blood in religious rituals. Sommer, a reporter for the Daily Beast, does much more. He traces the rise of lawless message boards like 8chan. He profiles the key players. He chronicles QAnon's influence on the January 6th attack on the Capitol. He sneaks into QAnon rallies. He analyzes Republican reactions to the blight in their fields, and he breathes deep of the madness while staying blissfully sane himself. Sommer resorts to wearing disguises at rallies, as would you if you had to spend time around excitable, apocalypse-minded shouters who never believe that the name of the website you work for is a reference to a newspaper in Evelyn Waugh's satirical novel, Scoop. 
There is a similarity between Fleet Street's sensational newspapers, of which Waugh's imaginary Daily Beast was one, and QAnon and Fox News. For all three, the workaday method, as the old credo has it, is first simplify, then exaggerate, then repeat. Up to now, I've mostly avoided reading too deeply about QAnon. From a distance, it seemed dumb, confusing, boring, and scary all at once, and I had Wordle to do. I hoped the story would go away, like smallpox, rinderpest, and Madison Cawthorn. But QAnon's influence has metastasized. Its believers and former boosters now hold public office and thus have influence over how the rest of us live. Exhibit A is that subtle thinker and Georgia congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. Sommer is the perfect person to tell this story. He's a media obsessive, almost morbidly well-informed. His interest in broadcasting skews Republican. I was raised in a conservative Texas family where road trips meant listening to Rush Limbaugh's talk radio show and Ayn Rand audiobooks. I cried over Ronald Reagan's funeral and pored over a Bill O'Reilly book for teenagers for advice on how to handle dilemmas like smoking and premarital sex. But even after I left the party behind, I nursed a perverse appetite for Republican media personalities and the ideological struggles of the American right. Among the takeaways from Trust the Plan is the cynicism of most of the major figures in the QAnon universe. To paraphrase Christopher Hitchens on Jerry Falwell, if you gave them enemas, they could be buried in matchboxes. Their followers are sheep to be shorn. These leaders are taking dangerous advantage, and they know it, of marginalized and disrespected people many with debts or serious health issues, and promising them redemption in a coming storm, led by the messianic figure of Donald Trump, that will wipe away institutions and thus their problems. It's a violent fantasy that's goading people into violent real-world actions. A ridiculous sticky bomb has been attached to the underside of the American experiment, and it could still go off. A surprise about Sommer's book is how moving it frequently is. Trust the plan ripens into tragedy. It describes those moments when family members realize that dad has leapt the hedge of rationality, that he isn't kidding when he talks about Trump and conspiracies and experimental vaccines and the impending storm, and he wants you to believe his ideas, too. People have often called Sommer for help, how to expel this virus. He isn't sure what to tell them. His book makes you homesick for the oldest and simplest of American virtues, knowledge, skepticism, and sanity. This review was written by Dwight Garner, who has been a book critic for The Times since 2008. His most recent book is Garner's Quotations, a Modern Miscellany. Homestead by Melinda Moustakis when Melinda Moustakis's engrossing debut novel, Homestead, begins, it's 1956, and the vast territory of Alaska is open for taking. If Lawrence, a 27-year-old tenderfoot from Minnesota, can make a go of it on the 150 acres he's claimed, the land is his. Fell the trees and clear 20 acres of land to seed a crop raise a cabin with nails and timber, and weather the seasons, Moustakis writes. This is the way to earn and own the deed. 
Earning and owning make up the latitude and longitude of the novel. Lawrence finds purpose in calling things his. He studies the map at the Bureau of Land Management and takes the first lot he sees, drives to the land and stares out, resolving that this is the place where his children will call the years. But first he needs a wife for the sake of children. This decision, too, will be based on instinct and circumstance. The first woman Lawrence reckons can winter in a cabin, he will ask her. Enter Marie from Conroe, Texas. She's seen snow exactly once before and is now visiting her sister and brother-in-law in Anchorage. Marie shares Lawrence's impulsive spirit. Moustakis tells us there are scores of men in Alaska, their faces a worn stare, and the first man Marie likes the look of, who has prospects and could be tied down long enough to marry, she will have him. When she sidles up to Lawrence at the Moose Lodge, he stiffens and doesn't respond to her overtures. A moment later, he hands her a scrap of paper that says simply, 150 acres. It's a brag, a promise, and all the wooing Marie needs. This one she would endure. As newlyweds, Marie and Lawrence sleep on a couch inside the bus he's lived in for a year. They eat oatmeal and more oatmeal. Lawrence teaches Marie to drive the 53 Mercury truck he drove up to Alaska. He's stoic and hardworking, but withholding, and Marie is uneasy. Soon she's pregnant. She's sick all the time. When family visits, Lawrence's father, Joseph, Marie's buoyant sister, Sheila, Sheila's impish husband, Sly, the relief is immediate for readers and characters alike. Moustakis's language is spare and exquisite, tough and lovely. The sentences build on themselves, becoming expansive and staggering in their sweep. For example, snow came and went, a promise and a lie, and the turned leaves lose their finest gold and yellow leaves to the wind. The scrape of moose antlers on branches and the rustle of willow shrub, the rut and the bulls in a fight over the cows, the hollow racket of antler thrown against antler, the echo through the low. The book unfolds over three years, forty months to be exact. Each chapter moves us one month ahead. But it's the determined, forward-looking focus of Marie and Lawrence that makes the story really move. They stare down bears, wolves, brutal temperatures, hardship and despair, and then they eat their beans and go to bed. There is always more to do, more to make for themselves. Lawrence is bent on building a 30-by-30-foot cabin. He knows that attempting a house of this size is unwise in the race against winter. But more house means more work, which means more reason to keep from talking. Plus, he wants 12 kids a good round number of mouths to feed, who will learn to feed themselves, work the land, and one day carry him to his grave. So the family will need more space. For Marie, one colicky baby proves to be hard enough. What did he know of carrying a child, she wonders. When Marie and Lawrence argue, they argue about power, the tyranny of his moods, her right to have her name on the deed. Stories of Alaska are full of harsh conditions and hard, lonely lives. How small a life is, how uninspiring, when we examine it alongside earth and sky. In an old hat box, Marie stashes letters, pamphlets on statehood, her marriage license, and the promissory note for the land. 
Again and again, she asserts her right to have her name on the deed. It's a matter of paperwork, but crucial. What is her stake, her claim? She wants something to show for her resilience. Claims, proof, stakes. The language of homesteading is the language of argument, of making a case for oneself. Marie and Lawrence lay out the evidence. They point to the reasons. They insist. Thank you for joining us for the New York Times Book Review. My name is Nora Ami. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.